0: When I was younger, I had a very strong internal victim mentality. You know, this all this is happening to me. I was in a psychiatric chair when I was 10 years old and in and out of a hospital at that age. I was depressed and really psychologically just really shattered. And I had to make a decision in my life that nothing that happened to me could define me. Hmm. And I made a decision that I was my own ceiling, that no one else was ever going to be blamed or responsible for what I did or didn't achieve. And it was the most empowering thing in my life because the moment I took responsibility for my life. I also took the power to change my life. When you give responsibility away, you've also given away the power.
1: Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends doing it the right way anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Dierdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Travis Makes Friends. Today I am making friends with Erwin McManus. Erwin, what's up? Welcome to the show. Man, it's good to be here with you. Yes, sir. Thanks so much for joining me. I know you got a crazy busy schedule these days. I do, but I'm so excited to be in your friend group. (laughs) That's yeah, officially. Yeah, officially. officially. Welcome to the friend group. Before we get into the story and a lot of other points that I wanted to talk to you about today, I want to make sure we talk about the book. Because I love when people in your position decide to write books that are widely applicable to a massive audience Mm -hmm. because you are an expert level communicator and you disseminate thoughts extremely well and you're extremely well educated on philosophy and religion and so many other things. I I like seeing books like this because they're just, they can apply to anybody and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't require a spiritual religious background. You're still going to get a lot from this book and this Mm -hmm. one specifically I like a lot because everything starts with mindset. Yeah. So before we jump in, if you're watching or, or listening to this right now, be sure to go pick up a copy of Irwin's new book, Mind Shift, because I'm sure you will really enjoy that. Before we jump into the rest of the conversation, let's grab one or two quick pointers or, you know, the reason, first off, that you decided to write this book and, and why you decided to write it now, and then maybe a couple of key takeaways that you want people to grab from it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, really, I wrote the book as a social psychologist and having studied human behavior, genius, optimal performance for 40 years Yeah, and realizing That's what that, you have your degree in. Yeah. Right? yeah in that's, psychology? My, that's my whole background. Yeah. 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 And what really would frustrate me a lot of times was that I would interact with people who had incredible talent and capacity and potential and they had the whole arsenal, but their thinking was so bad that they always underperformed, always underachieved. Mm. And because I work with people who have a very small margin of error, when I work with, let's say like Sean McVay, the head coach of the Rams or Jerry Lorenzo, who's the creator of fear of God, the fashion brand or people in the business and the music world. The the more you move toward greatness, the more you move to the highest level optimal performance, you have almost zero margin for error. Hmm. If you're shooting for average, you have massive margin yeah, for error. Right. And, and so I, I wrote the book because I, I felt like most people think they're hitting walls, obstacles that circumstances or their background or their environment are actually what are limiting them. But it's really internal limitations that keep most of us from underachieving in our life. Hmm. So I I wrote the book because I kept getting the question all over the world, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? And it really, the question would kind of irritate me because sure. everyone asks it. But then I thought, instead of being frustrated with the question, just answer the question. Yeah. That's why I wrote Mindshift. What I would tell my 25-year-old self is, if you can make these small incremental mental shifts, your life will accelerate and expand at a rate that you cannot even imagine. So Mindshift is really about 12 internal structures that if you will go through the effort of making these small granular shifts, your life will change. Yeah.
1: What was a surprise to you as you were writing the book? Like, was there anything that you decided to put in last minute or maybe took out last minute or something that, that you learned doing the research required to put the book together? What what was the most surprising piece of, of writing this particular book?
0: I think the thing that's most surprising is that everything I write about is obvious after you see it. (laughs) It's, yeah. It's, it's not obvious before you see it. Right, right, It's obvious after you see it, and after you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. And you go, "How could I have not seen that?" Yeah. Now there's no excuses. Yeah. To you know, what, what do they say? It's like if
1: you're if you're ignorant to it, then or if you get the knowledge and you don't do something about it, then then it's hundred percent on you. Or you know, I forget. I'm butchering the phrase completely. But
0: yeah, Be- because I think there are so many genuinely good people who have bad thinking. And I started writing this book on October 26, 1990. I know the exact day <laughs> okay. that the idea of the, for this book came. Okay. Because on October 25th, 1990, Buster Douglas defended his title for the first time after eight months earlier in Tokyo, Japan, having defeated Mike Tyson. Tyson, yeah. No one expected it. He was a 42 to one underdog. He had lost five fights before. So he, you know, he didn't have an unblemished record. Right. And Tyson was supposed to knock him out. And the fact that he survived was a shock to everyone. 10th round, he knocks out Mike Tyson. And what really shocked me wasn't that he beat Tyson, is that eight months later when he defended his title, he came in overweight, out of shape. And so I even heard, and it might be urban myth, that he was in a McDonald's that afternoon eating at McDonald's. Wow. And he didn't even try. So Evander Holyfield knocked him out in the third round. And the next day I'm listening to sports radio, And I hear one guy go, why do you think of Andrew didn't even, I mean, why do you think um, Buster Buster Douglas didn't even try? The guy said, you know, he's supposed to be a really good human being. They said, he's even religious. I think he's a Christian. And then the third guy goes, some people are simply structured for failure. And the moment he said that, it shook me. And I thought, am I structured for failure? Mm. Am I one of those some people? Do I have internal structures for failure that are actually competing with other internal structures that I have that might move me towards success. And I'm an incredible optimist. So I thought, if there are internal structures for failure, then there are internal structures for success. Hmm. So I spent the last really 30 years studying intensely internal structures for failure. Hmm. How do you destroy those internal limitations and how do you create new internal structures that actually move you towards success? Yeah, And because Buster Douglas knew how to overcome failure, he lost five fights and still destroyed Tyson. Yeah, yeah. What he couldn't survive was not the weight of failure, but the weight of success.
1: His is internal
0: thermostat yeah. and, set it back down to where he thought it should be. And what I found with many entrepreneurs, with many leaders, I mean, they know how to handle failure, but they don't know how to handle success. And this book is really about being able to build the kind of internal world where not even success can bring you down.
1: At that time, when you asked yourself that question, am I you know, program for failure. Yeah. Did you have an answer to it?
0: Yeah, I could, see, I, I could see some of my internal structures were guaranteeing that I would yeah. fail. I had certain self-destructive patterns yeah. that even when I succeeded, I would revert back to them. How do you recognize those? Sometimes through pain, hmm. right? And or through a book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the person who says, I have to learn it the hard way, I call that person a fool. (laughs) And I want to learn the easy way. Yeah, yeah. One of the chapters talks about you can't take everyone with you. And one of the hardest things for me was that every time I succeeded, I wanted everyone to go with me. Yeah. I want to take my family with me, my friends with me, you know, everyone who was associated with me. And I would find myself eventually being anchored by the relationships that I was trying to move forward. And one of the most painful things I had to discover is not everyone wants to go where you're going. You know, the reason there are people who live in Wyoming and Idaho and North Dakota and South Dakota is not everyone made it to California. Yeah, right. Everyone was going to California, Mm -hmm. but not everyone decided to keep going. And you just have to accept some people want to live in Cheyenne. Mm -hmm. Some people want to live in Sioux Falls. Mm -hmm. Some people want to live in Des Moines. And if you're going all the way to the West Coast, you can't try to drag everyone with you. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that if you have a mindset that success is bringing everyone with you, You will actually limit how much you will accomplish in your life. You will have to accept the fact that if you're going to keep elevating and growing and changing, your friend set is going to change over a lifetime. If you're an alcoholic and you have a lot of drinking buddies, they're only going to want to be your buddy as long as you're a drinking buddy. Mm -hmm. The moment you get sober, you're going to have to make a choice. They're going to either pull you back in or you're going to have to pull yourself out. Yeah. In the same way that you have to change drinking buddies, you have to change underachieving buddies. If you're an underachiever and you're not driven toward excellence or uh, success or some level of greatness, the moment you decide to change, all your underachieving buddies are gonna be unhappy with you. Yeah. Because you're changing the rules of the relationship. The friendships begin to change. And so you have to begin to decide, am I gonna keep my underachieving buddies or am I gonna elevate and allow the people who want to elevate to go with me?
1: I think a lot of people too g- get really scared about that for multiple reasons, but yeah. one of them being that there's like, oh, I'm just, I, you know, I'm I'm too nice and I don't want to tell them blah, blah, blah. And I, I always kind of look at that. I'm just like, well, I don't know. I don't think you're going to have to say anything. Yeah. I just think that if you are moving down this path and they're continuing down this path, what happens over time is just this natural separation where you're just going to find yourself being with this group of friends more often rather than this group of friends. Yeah, and
0: sometimes the indictment is you've changed. Yes. But really what they don't want to say that's actually true is you've grown. Hmm. Because if you're going to grow, you're going to change. You have to change. You have to change. Yeah. And I remember one time I was in a conversation with someone that I really love and admire. And they said to me, wow, you've really changed. And they said it as an insult. Hmm. And I felt it like, and I wanted to say, no, I haven't. (laughs) And uh, then I took some time to reflect on it. I called him back and I said, you're right. Yeah. I've really changed. Yes. And in a year, I'm going to really change again. In a year, I'm going really mm-hmm. to change some more. Right. And, and I, I just turned 65 and I'm still changing. I, I feel myself growing. I, I, I'm more curious, more imaginative, more risk-taking, more excited about life than I've ever been my whole life. And, and frankly, I don't have a lot of 65-year-old friends because they do not want to engage life with the same level of intensity. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When I was 50, I, all my friends who were leaders yeah. and ran organizations at 50 came to me and said, Hey, Erwin, it's time for all of us to pass on the torch. And we need to move into like our, our mentor sage time of life. And, and I just looked at them and I said, You're out of your mind. <laughs> like, I, I've just started to set myself on fire. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just beginning to pioneer. I'm, I'm now moving to my most creative self. So I, I can tell you, every decade of my life, I've lost friends because they all began landing the plane. Mm. Like, I'm not landing the plane. Yeah. I'm building a new plane while I'm still flying. Exactly. And, right. and you have to decide in your life what kind of environment you want to create and let people decide for themselves if they want to be in that environment.
1: The first time I had Ed Milet on the show, I don't know, three, four years ago now, he told this illustration or story about when he was going to the park with his kid when he was really, you know, young and mm-hmm. Standing, sitting next to another parent and they were watching their kids and talking as parents do mm-hmm. at the park, trying to come up with something to say, you know, and uh, the one guy goes, man, it's crazy like, how often they're changing. It's mm-hmm. so crazy just to watch them change like that. And then Ed was just kind of like, I felt bad after I said it, but it just instinctually out loud just said, when did that stop for you? And it, it was just like, uh, oh, oops, my bad. Uh, I know we just met each other at this random park, yep. but that's a good question. Right. Is as a kid, you're constantly changing and That's you're right. taught to change and you're and you're in your not only taught to you're encouraged to, to continually change and become different and to learn that this isn't the path forward, that this is the path forward. And then all of a sudden, like somebody hands you a diploma at 17 or at 22, if you end up going to college and then you're just supposed to be like, done, cool now I'm changed and I've learned and it's all good now. And now I'll live the rest of my life having learned nothing or having changed at all. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are more comfortable just staying on that autopilot mode than confronting the things that they still
0: have to confront. Absolutely. One of the chapters is uh, called uh, You Are Your Own Ceiling. And one of the challenges in life You know, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. Mm -hmm. English is my second language. Mm -hmm. I came from a country that's war-torn. It was the most violent country in the world for probably 40 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never knew my real father. My grandparents raised me for the first few years. My mom came back and got us later. I was raised by a stepdad who was involved in what we called creative underground economies (laughs) and, uh, um, you know, very connected to Italian families (laughs) and were really big on import-export. And I grew up with an alias. My name is not Erwin McManus because he took us to a police station, convinced him we'd been robbed. And I came out with an alias because he needed an alias to recreate his life. I, I have so much dysfunction. So what you're saying is you're extremely privileged. Yes, I am. Yeah, <laughs> I am because I was given so many obstacles and opportunities and challenges to reinvent myself and recreate myself. No kidding. And, and the whole point of that really for me is it would have been so easy to point something else as my ceiling and say, you know... I never achieved because I'm an immigrant. I never achieved because, you know, I was an outsider. I never achieved because I never knew my real father. I never achieved because of this or that. And the reality is that when I was younger, I had a very strong internal victim mentality. Mm. You know, this all this is happening to me. I was in a psychiatric chair when I was 10 years old and in and out of a hospital at that age. I was depressed and really psychologically just really shattered. And I had to make a decision in my life that nothing that happened to me could define me. Hmm. And I made a decision that I was my own ceiling, that no one else was ever going to be blamed or responsible for what I did or didn't achieve. And it was the most pa- empowering thing in my life because the moment I took responsibility for my life, I also took the power to change my life. Well, when you give responsibility away, you've also given away the power. But why
1: do you think you chose that path in spite of everything that was happening where a lot of people? have a similar background mm-hmm. and they go the opposite path. Do you think that that's largely personality driven? Is it something that you learned? Were you seeking it out? Why did you make it this way and other people
0: choose something different? I actually think it's the mental structures okay, that are developed. Uh, one of the great advantages I had, speaking of all those disadvantages, mm-hmm. was that at the age of three in El Salvador, my grandfather started teaching me chess. Oh, really? Okay. And He would beat me in six, seven moves and checkmate me because I'm three. (laughs) And my grandfather was merciless. And I would cry and say, Poppy, let me have a move. And he would say, when you earn a move, you can have one. So he taught me at the youngest age humanly possible that every choice I make has benefits and consequences. If I make an intelligent choice, it expands my future. If I make an unwise choice, it limits my future. And that mental construct affected everything in my life. The problem sometimes is that you're raised with all these challenges in your life, but you also are taught that you're a victim rather than you actually have the power to impact everything around you. My grandfather put something inside of me I'm really grateful for. He didn't let me have a move because life isn't fair. Mm. Life doesn't give you a move. You have to step back and earn your move. And you can cry all you want, but then you have to decide, do I get back in the game and do I win the next one? It took me years before I ever won my first game. So I learned early on, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. And if I'm not willing to fail, I'm never going to succeed. Yeah. I lost so many times until I could get that first win. But man, when I got that first win, it was hard to go back. Yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> uh, you, you brought something up that I wanna, that I want to touch on a little bit, because I think there's I think there's kind of two schools of thought if you look yeah. at it from a polarity perspective mm-hmm. where there's one group of people that would say that you are largely like you as a person are based on circumstance, you yeah. know, who you were born to, the environment that you were in, sure. the culture you were raised in, part of the world you were you were raised in, you're you're, you're a product of of circumstance and environment. Mm-hmm. And then there's people on the other side that are, you know, you're a product of your choices. And I I think that largely it's probably a combination of those two things and whenever you take two opposite you know polar sides mm-hmm. it's usually something closer to the middle but i'm curious to hear your perspective on that from from being somebody who is now deeply religious and you're the pastor of one of the largest churches in the country and that's been a huge part of your story and your in your you know career mm-hmm. and your life so to speak I guess, where does the buck stop? You know, like if you're born into this particular thing, where does it all of a sudden become like, well, now you're choosing it. And how do you get out of that if you are in the thinking that you were a victim of your
0: circumstances? Sure. Well, there's two sides to your question. And but I'll, so I'll hit one side first. Yeah, please. And when you have the dichotomy of, is it your environment or is it your choices? Mm. And I definitely fall into the category of your choices because I, I I believe in the power of human agency. And- I think scientifically I can prove this because you can have two people in the exact same trauma come out completely different. Yeah. Two people in almost identical circumstances come out completely different. So when you can actually mitigate the environment and go, all right, when people make the same choices, they seem to go in the same direction. But when people are in the same environments, they don't go in the same direction. They make, they go in the direction of their choices. And so I'm not saying that your circumstances will make it harder. Sure or make it easier. But the problem is this. If I make really good choices and my life comes out really well, you can rewrite it and go, yeah, but he had this advantage and this advantage and this advantage. Mm -hmm. And if I make really bad choices and things go really poorly, you go, yeah, but you had this going against you and this going against you. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that there are entitled people who who have lived really underachieving lives and entitled people who have lived extraordinary lives. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are born in poverty who have been trapped in poverty and people born in poverty who find some way to overcome it. I do think that opportunity does not fall equally in the world. Yeah, And that's why I feel like one of my roles in life is to try to help people have as much opportunity as possible. Because I worked with the urban poor for at least a decade in my life. And I found that there are many people who have internal determination, but lack the social opportunities that others do. And I feel like a part of our social responsibility is to make sure everyone has an opportunity, yeah. but you cannot give a person determination. If you give a person opportunity and they lack determination, that opportunity will never create the outcome you want. But then you actually mentioned my faith in that I'm a, uh, a pastor of Mosaic. And frankly, this is where I became super frustrated because I didn't grow up religious. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with a faith in that sense. But I would hear Christians say things like, you know, if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. And I'm going, where did you get that fatalistic mentality? Hmm. You know, and I wrote this book in much part because I, I think so much of the thinking in the world of faith, it's such bad thinking. Yeah. And, you know, and people, I'd go to meetings and there'd be almost nobody there and somebody would say, everyone that God wanted here is here. And I'd go, no, this was terrible marketing. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, And, uh, and and so I am the least fatalistic person in the world. I actually think we have the power of agency that humans create and that the future doesn't happen to us. The future comes out of us Mm. that in the same way that silkworms create silk and bees create honey, humans create futures. That's what we're designed to do. Yeah. And I would never want a human being to relinquish that. And so if you go, yeah, but this is my environment, my circumstances, I go, yes. It's unfair. Your situation is worse than someone else's or yeah. worse than mine. It just doesn't change the rules of the game. You still have to choose if anything's going to change. And what's so
1: interesting, I've been doing the show for over six years. Mm-hmm. We're coming up on episode 900, I think, now of wow. the show. We talked to hundreds of people, billionaires, A-list celebrities, athletes, mm-hmm. comedians, pastors, authors, a wide variety of extremely successful people. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've noticed with the people who are the most successful, I guess I'm making up this number, but I have to imagine that it's over 80% of them came from some sort of dire circumstances mm-hmm. or at least suboptimal circumstances. Yeah. And that became the origin story, you know, and it's just, wh- wh- when did we get to when did we start thinking that we could achieve extraordinary things and proliferate you know success and greatness without the struggle of becoming the person that's capable of doing those things i find
0: most successful people are running from something and running to something both of them yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you know and so a lot of my friends who have you know gained great wealth a lot of them are running from poverty right right but they're running to success and wealth and it's almost like you have something chasing you right. and then you have something you're chasing.
1: Well, and scientifically proven, mm-hmm. you're always more motivated to run from the thing that's chasing you <laughs> rather than run to the thing that you're running toward. Yes, it's an interesting
0: right. combination yeah. you know, uh, of both. Uh, but I also think it's that when you start with hardship or struggle or yeah. some level of sacrifice, it creates internal structures for success. I think one of the great tragedies, I guess, in life is the weight of talent. What I found in all my research is that talented people who express talent from a young age mm-hmm. usually don't have the same need to develop internal structures for success. Yeah. So what happens is that, well, you have talent, we're going to build external structures. We're going to suck all the talent out of you. Yeah. If you're a football player or a mathematician or a violinist, if you have, if you're a prodigy, We're going to build external structures so that you can succeed. But it's not because they love you. It's because they love your talent. But the moment the structures are gone, it's why, what, 75% of pro football players with two to five years after they're finished are dead, divorced, drug addicted, or bankrupt. And it's because those external structures were there and then they're gone and they do not have the internal structure for success. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't have the curse of talent. And like like other people in my life. Yeah. And I didn't have the curse of of being a a super athlete or being a super intellectual or having a a super artist and someone saying, we got to build a structure around this talent. Yeah. So I had to develop internal structures for success. So the moment I was out of high school, the moment I'm out of college, I instantly start succeeding faster than all the people I knew who had extraordinary talent Mm. because now they didn't have the structures to support their talent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, so I look at it and go, man, I hope you don't get the curse of talent when you're young. Yeah. Uh, and if you do, you need to develop internal structures for success. And a lot of what I do in coaching a lot of high talent people is trying to help them build internal structures before those external structures are gone so they can keep succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. because. Yeah, if you
1: don't have the the blueprint or the outline yeah. for creating more success, then you're only relying on what you have naturally, Yeah. right? Which is a scary place to be if you, because then again, you're you're put under the consequence of not being able to change anything about your life. You don't have any agency, you don't have any power to change it because you're only relying on your talent, which you only have a finite amount of. You can't create more talent. You know, you can get better through work and yeah. building structures to help you get that way but if you're just relying on that one piece
0: then you get what you get yeah and And this reality is extreme i mean i I said i bought a cup of coffee for a guy who was living out of his car who'd made i think over 100 million dollars as a pro athlete lost everything and wasn't even quite 40 years old and and so this isn't just a secondary issue if you do not develop internal mental structures for success you will eventually become your own worst enemy no kidding
1: yeah. <laughs> no kidding okay i want to i want to get a little bit into your background here Erwin, because you kind of touched on it earlier mm-hmm. Eng- english second language mm-hmm. n- no no father you have you, you know erwin mcmanus isn't even mm-hmm. your what What was your 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 given name my,
0: my uh, family name is cardona okay yeah.
1: so immediately when you're i mean i can't even imagine what that does to you as a young kid obviously to you it it threw you into almost levels of psychosis for being nine, 10 years old, which is insane. But if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because your literal identity was stripped from you Mm -hmm. at such a young age. Everything you knew, everything you were familiar with was completely gone. And you had to start over at nine or eight or 10 or whatever age that was. And then that obviously pushed you down a path to be like, "Hey, I want to learn how to master this thing in my head Mm -hmm. called my mind, obviously, because like there's some things that are kind of scaring me right now. And I'm only 11 <laughs> and that's probably not going to get any better. So can you walk us through how you ended up going from studying world religion? I know you mm-hmm. said your mom, you know, was doing some prep for this mm-hmm. and you said your mom was studying like Buddhism and mm-hmm. all these other different religions. That's and right. Yeah. Kind of hopping around like religion mm-hmm. hopping as you were growing up. So even those things, it's like, there's no source of fundamental truth mm-hmm. in your life at this point. And then you go to college and study psychology and philosophy Where do you feel like you finally start grabbing some footing? Like you, you put your foot down you're like, okay, I know this is, Mm -hmm. is is true. And how would you describe that, you know, subsequent couple of
0: years? Yeah. I feel like some of the, some of it came backwards for me. Okay. You you know, if, if you're a person of faith, uh, usually go, oh, I met Jesus and then all this changed, but that's not really the way it worked for me, Mm -hmm. You, you know? I think I read pretty much every mythology book in the library by the time I was in sixth grade. Okay, and I was reading these physicists who were also science fiction writers, like Isaac Asanoff and and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and Andre Norton, and and so I I, I really began exploring like what is real and where is reality and uh, and I was trying to figure out is there any meaning to life at a really really early age, but for whatever reason, um, and I'm not even sure why. At a very young age, I decided that I would try to be an honorable human being. And I think it's because I grew up around so much dysfunction and lying was just a natural skill set. Yeah. Yeah. You know, truth was a commodity. Mm -hmm. Morality was, was something fluid and non-existent. Mm. And maybe it was my way of trying to take some control over the world around me. Yeah. But I was really, really young. I decided, I think I'm just going to try to always tell the truth and I'm going to, be a person who doesn't steal and and i know this is insane but i was actually like an intensely moral human being even though i didn't believe in god and i thought i'm going to treat every human being as if they had like infinite value so early on i was trying to find what it meant to be truly human and then i went to college and i found socrates and i really fell in love with the virtues of the stoics yeah Mm-hmm. And it became, I integrated a lot of those views. I actually wrote a paper on economic development, Socratic thought that gave me admission into three different universities mm-hmm. when I wrote it. And, and and so I thought, I think I'm going to become a Socratic. I'm going to live a person, be a person who lives for truth. And I'm going to ask questions more than I'm going to n- have answers. And, sure. and, and so I, I tried to take on those virtues of character and integrity. And, and all of that was before I had any kind of, faith in God. And so I was trying to become this noble human being. My problem was I wanted to fix the world, but I couldn't really fix me. Hmm. And I thought, man, if I can't even fix me, how am I going to make the world better? Yeah, I studied Christianity for about 30 minutes in a philosophy class, laughed and thought, there's no way this could ever be true. <laughs> so I discounted that really fast. Yeah. I was much more interested in, in probably like the teachings of Marcus Aurelius and all sure. those, you know, and-, and yeah, and Aristotle and was really just, I think, enamored with the ideals of Greek. Thi- this episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed.
1: We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis.
0: Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Thinking. Mm-hmm. And then one day my mom calls me and says, Hey, um, I've become a Christian. And I didn't know what that was, but she seemed happy. And my mom been through divorces and been through a lot of pain and sounds like it. You know, her happiness made me happy. Sure. And so I said, that, that's wonderful. I, I had no idea what that meant. I thought she joined the Peace Corps, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> became a humanitarian. I didn't, I didn't even know it was connected to a religion, right. but she was happy. So I realized I wasn't like against religion. I just was indifferent to it. Yeah. And then I went home for spring break and found out she was going to a church. I didn't know churches existed. And, I, and I'm like, what are you doing? And then she had my sisters going. And I thought, well, is this like some kind of sect or what? What's going on? And now my brother's an atheist, and he's about two years older than me. We went, we go home for the summer, and he starts going to church. And he's an atheist. I mean, he's a hardcore atheist. I'm a yeah. mystic. I'm soft. Sure, you, you know, sure. I got a goopy middle. He's yeah. got a hardcore middle. <laughs> yeah. you know? And all of a sudden, I see him reading a Bible, and I, I remember calling him a hypocrite. And I said, "What are you doing? Reading a Bible? You're an atheist. It's that's so hypocritical." Yeah. And I, and I said, "Why are you going to church?" And he goes beautiful girls and great volleyball hmm. and i thought i could use some religion it <laughs> you know? doesn't sound all that bad yeah, yeah. so it was, there was no noble pursuit you know in that you know and and so i started dropping in to play volleyball and yeah. and to meet beautiful girls yeah and met really interesting beautiful people i had a positive experience i know a lot of people had a really negative experience when they encounter church or christianity or catholicism I very fortunately had the opposite experience. You know, I'm basically, you know, 20 years old, meeting really beautiful, kind, generous people. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, they're just too good to be true. Sure, where it's shocking for you. It's culture
1: shock for you coming it was. from your background.
0: So yeah. I argued, because I'm a philosopher, so I, every one of them like disproving God. And, and they had not been trained to argue sure. at the level I argued. And they would always say, Erwin, you're winning the argument, but all I know is God loves me, and I'm really grateful for that love. And I'd be angry. Yeah, Because yeah. if I win the argument, you have to It unbelieve. means I'm right. right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you have to re- re- recant. Yeah. And, right. uh, and they wouldn't recant. They would just say, yeah, we just don't know how to win this argument, yeah. but you know, we just know what we know. And it would irritate me. And I started feeling this emptiness. And I remember flying my girlfriend in that I dated for a few years. Cause I, I felt like, am I about to crumble? Like, you know, that's mm-hmm. the way I thought about it, you know, because yeah. I, when I saw my brother reading the Bible, I, I said, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, if I, if I believe in God, it's going to be an intellectual decision, not an emotional decision. And I remember looking at him and saying, you're lying. You're just about to crumble. And you're just trying to make it look like it's unemotional. Mm. So I was not the guy that was going to buy in. Yeah. You, you know? Did your brother? He did. It shocked the daylights out of me Mm -hmm. that my atheist brother all of a sudden says, I believe there's a God and I've given my life to Jesus. And my two sisters did, and my mom, I was the only one that didn't. And it was weird, to be honest with you. I had my little sisters coming up crying, going, We don't want you to go to hell. And I'm like, What makes you think I'm going to hell? You know, who told, who gave you the list? Like it was all so weird to me. Right. You know, and then on top of that, I was actually more moral than my family.
1: Mm. That's when it starts messing with your mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I'm like, wait a minute, I have higher ethics than you. Mm-hmm. I treat people better. I have a commitment to higher virtues, and you're going to heaven. You know, I was basically, if that's the way God is, I'm out. Yeah. I had no understanding of like grace, forgiveness. Mm. It wasn't even my vocabulary at the time. Do you think morality?
1: can exist without the presence of God or a deity?
0: Absolutely, because I think God does exist and his image exists in every human being. And so I think there's always like that whisper in all of us, our conscience. Yeah. You know, I I cannot explain, one, why I wanted to be a good human being. And two, how I knew how to define a good human being. Hmm. How did I know that not deceiving you was actually a moral act? Like, how did I know not stealing your stuff was actually an act of ability? Mm-hmm. Like, and like, And even the way I treated women, I just made a decision early on that I would just never use anyone for my own personal pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where those came from. That makes me believe that, that in a sense, we're being informed by something that sometimes we didn't even know exists. Yeah. You, you know? and But then it made it hard for me to come to faith because I felt like I was actually trying to be a good human being. Yeah you know I entrusted my life to Jesus not because I had any concern about afterlife zero I entrusted my life to Jesus because I thought if there's a God and he knows me that means my life has meaning and significance Mm -hmm. and I already knew what it felt like to live without any sense of meaning Wondering if my life was completely insignificant. I was just a speck of dust mm-hmm. in the backdrop of the universe. And so I opened my life up to God just from the hope that maybe this life mattered. And yeah, and that was it. Like God, if you exist and I, and you're real and life matters and yeah. I matter. I'm in. It was a revolutionary moment for me. Yeah. I mean, that's not what really I meant to come and talk about. No, but that's no, I, I, real I, I to who the, I
1: am. Having the conversation, yeah. um, Let me let me ask you this: Do you do you believe that you are one hundred percent correct? Oh, I don't think I'm right about anything. <laughs> that, that, that's the whole point. That I <laughs> heard you say that on stage one time, which is why I knew you were going to answer it that way. <laughs> and that's frankly why I was fine uh, down with having the conversation because mm-hmm. I, I tell people all the time: It's just like if, if we can't both admit mm-hmm. that we don't know the answers to everything, mm-hmm. then what are we talking about yeah. here? Because we're, you're saying stuff like they're absolutes, but yeah. you can't prove anything. I can't prove anything. Like, let's have a conversation about it. But you're not interested in having a conversation. You're interested in judging me for what I'm thinking and trying to move me over to your side. Yeah. Right? E- so, even
0: if God exists and Jesus is God, it's not because I'm right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it, regardless of it's whether you think it's it true is. true outside exactly. of me. Truth exists
1: outside of your opinion. Yeah. 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 So
0: I don't get credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I. I don't even really know my real name, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I misspelled my name because I, no one taught me how to spell it. I haven't been right about anything <laughs> really pretty much a whole life. Yeah. And I just know that what connects us together are the same longings. We, we all long to be loved, sure. to be connected. We all long to find meaning in our lives. And we all long to make progress, to grow, to become something. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think we're connected in the questions far more than we're connected in the answers.
1: Yes, yeah. I, I heard somebody say recently, and I, I loved, it. I wrote it down I Have a whole, like, you know, notes section, in my phone of just different lessons or things that stuck out to me. And I said something like, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Yeah, And I was like, that, yeah. yes, that is what I'm after. Yeah. Because before it was like, I needed the answers yeah. and I don't know what it was. I, th- I mean, I think, I think it's kind of innate in all of us is we crave certainty and, and we, we, we want to know things, Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, some things you just, you can't really put your finger on and you got to at some point, just choose to believe something, you know, because nobody's going to be able to tell you a hundred percent.
0: Yeah. I I think the problem is that a lot of times we're trying to be right rather than be whole. And really I lead mosaic, not because I, I'm trying to get people to be right. I'm trying to help people be whole. Mm. And I have found a, a unique level of wholeness in my life. In inner peace, a sense of significance and value that I don't know how a person can live without. Mm. And I interact with so many people who are just so broken, and they feel so disconnected and lonely and empty inside. And that actually weighs on me. It matters to me. And I I think wholeness is so much more important, and than, than rightness. Yeah, you know, there's this um, assessment called the Strength Finder. That mm-hmm, actually yeah. has like 32 or 34 signatures or strengths. It was actually created out of our community at Mosaic through the really? Gallup organization. And my wife has a strength called belief. It's like her number two. And belief is like my number 30. And it's really way low on my <laughs> list. And I have what's called ideation. I have a thousand ideas a second, mm-hmm. but I don't have two or three things I hold to like a b- person with belief. Yeah. Well, my wife, she's certain even when she's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, We'll we'll be driving. And I'm telling you, this happens. We've been married 40 years. We'll be driving and we're going somewhere I've been, but she's never been. And then she'll go, turn right. (laughs) And I go, honey, it's left. She goes, it's right. And because I like being happy more than I like being right, I just turn right. Turn right, yep. Just turn right. And we'll drive and drive and drive. It gets quieter and quieter. And then eventually, and I just keep going. Yeah. And then she goes, you probably need to turn around soon. <laughs> I said, why, honey? And she goes, you know, you're going the wrong yeah, way. Yeah. Man, I'll turn around and go back. And I remember I asked her one time, I said, honey, I've been there. So I knew it was left, but you were so right. You're so certain that right was right. Yeah. That you actually shook me up. I thought maybe I am wrong. Right. See, because the way my personality set up is even if I'm right, I think I might be wrong. Yeah. It's easy to convince me, you know. Well, you and know- I said, what does it feel like? to feel so right certain yeah when you're wrong yeah because i don't even know what that feels like when i'm right
1: it's funny you say that i I have a i have a theory when it comes to that because i obviously some of it's largely personality driven Mm -hmm. however i tend to be more the way that you're describing Mm -hmm. yourself in being like i I, even when i'm right i'm like maybe ah maybe you know what i mean (laughs) like i I guess i could be wrong but i used to be the complete opposite Mm -hmm. where i was ardent and sure and confident in everything that I thought or believed or, or, or said. (laughs) And I I think what, what makes me now what I am, like in terms of, you know, feeling more like I'm wrong than I'm right, was realizing that I was wrong once. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like you're kind of the same way where you believed something and you had this one core belief and then you changed your belief completely. And that one belief shift changed everything about your entire life mm-hmm. forever, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's hard now to be like, oh, well, I cling to this belief without questioning it because if I had done that before, I wouldn't be where I am now. So I have to be willing to receive new information and change my belief system at some point.
0: Yeah. I also think is that my shift wasn't to a destination, but to a process. And I, I think the mistake people make a lot of times is they think that a proper belief gives you the end game
1: yeah like it's set in stone at that point you know
0: and so when i entrusted my life to jesus it was permission to always pursue the truth no matter where it led me yeah it wasn't oh i'm standing on truth and now i can't move right it was oh no now i'm on a journey of endless exploration to discover what's true and beautiful and good and Mm. and i think that for me is really really exciting you've shared the stage with a lot of different people obviously Yeah. Massive
1: Christian leaders and pastors and big conferences and stadiums and 30, 40, 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. But you've also sat on like debate stages and, yeah. and and talked with people who are on the opposite side of the aisle. Has there ever been a time where you were sitting in one of those being like, wow, ah, that guy has a point?
0: Always. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recently I've been listening to is it Lex Friedman? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And I like him a lot because the way he crafts his thinking. I, I find to be really thoughtful. Yeah. And I love when people ask questions that are unnerving or, or they frame things in a way where I'm going, okay, like really think that through. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, I always have conversations with people like Lex. And cause that's also me. When, when I wrote The Genius of Jesus, which was the book before Mindshift, mm-hmm. it was during the pandemic. I was in my back house and I had this thought, I can't believe my whole life revolves around someone who lived 2000 years ago. <laughs> like I literally having this thought in my back house. Yeah, I like going like if it were anyone else I would tell them you're out of your mind. Yeah. And and then I had this follow-up thought, what about if I'm wrong? Like what about if Jesus isn't God and you've built your whole life around him. And then I had this follow-up thought, because this is the way I I process things. Yeah. Yeah, but even if Jesus isn't real, the change in your life is real. Yeah. So how do you explain that? And also, what's the downside? Yeah, and and so then I had this thought: well, I've either been changed by Jesus as a person, or I've been changed by the idea of Jesus. And that's how I started writing the genius of Jesus. I thought, wait a minute, if Jesus isn't real and the idea is real, this is the greatest drop of genius in human history, because his genius didn't just change him; it changed people for two thousand years. And that's how I started studying the genius of Jesus going, what is the intrinsic genius of Jesus? One, was he a genius? Does he qualify mm-hmm. and Then two? What is that genius? And what really to me was so exciting was that genius is not transferable. You could spend 30 years with Picasso and never become Picasso. Mm-hmm. For 30 years with Bobby Fischer and never become a master in jazz. Mm-hmm. For 30 years with Stevie Wonder and never become a master musician. But you, if you spend your life in an intimate relationship with jesus you actually become more like him hmm. and that maybe the genius of jesus that his genius is transferable he actually makes you fully human and i think a lot of my writings are because i asked the fundamental questions of the person who completely disagrees with me because hmm. i'm completely disagreeing with me yeah. all the time, all the time. <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> you know right. and, and i think it's okay my wife gets nervous you know, and I mean, she'll say, I remember one time I was, we were in Greece in the pool and I started questioning all these things. And she goes, Are you saying you don't believe in Jesus anymore? Yeah. And I'm saying, honey, for me to say I don't believe in Jesus is for me to say, like, I don't believe in oxygen. I, I, I don't even know life without Jesus. Yeah. But I can question everything. See, right. Jesus isn't worried about that. God isn't nervous. Yes, exactly. About my questions, you know? And if he is, then he's not a really, good god mm-hmm. you know right he's not a, not a big enough god correct and yeah. so yes i've sat around people who believe the exact opposite in fact that's 100 million mm-hmm. uh, you know walter you know, uh, yeah. he's supposed to have the, what the <laughs> highest iq in the world at least that's what he <laughs> yeah, tells so, us that's what know. he says anyway yeah, yeah i right. think 197 or whatever 20s, yeah something like that and and i remember he sat down next to me after the first time i spoke there mm-hmm. and he said i was told that we need to talk because a meeting between us is inevitable and uh, that's hilarious and and he says you know i disagree with half of everything you said and so i get up on stage later and said hey walter the guy with the highest iq in the world agrees with half of everything I said," (laughs) (laughs) and we've had endless conversations he's come find me we talk so much and i actually kind of love it yeah yeah uh, because i go if i'm searching for truth having those ideas tested by the most intelligent thoughtful ruthless people in the world, it's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I, I think that's, to me, exciting. The truth doesn't run from questions. No. Yeah. And also, humility doesn't run from questions. Hmm. Like, arrogance is yes. afraid to be questioned. Right, right. And see, any truth where I might be right, I don't own that truth. Yeah. I just happen to have found it. And, and so if you can disprove that, That's okay because I only believed it because I thought it was true. Mm. I I didn't believe it because I'm so arrogant that I think I have truth. Yes. Where I am truth. I'm just in the best posture I can as a human being, grabbing the truth that actually makes me whole. So how can you question the big beliefs in
1: life without losing everything about your identity? Or is that kind of necessary in order to question those things to begin with is to be willing to lose your identity?
0: No, you know, because moving God out of it. I, I believe in generosity. I, I, I believe that generosity changes people, yeah. that it makes us better human beings, that it changes the whole social construct, that okay. it makes me more ambitious because only generative people can be truly generous. Which is very true. And, and so I hold this virtue as a a truth. Yeah. And you can disagree with me. You can try to disprove it. But I'm really comfortable going, this is something I hold as true. I actually believe that being a person of truth is a more viable gift to humanity than being a person who lies, regardless of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I've chosen to be a person of integrity. Not, not because it makes me more money. <laughs> you know, right, not, right. Not, not because anything except that I can look in the mirror at night and live with who I am. Yeah, I, I think there are certain things you can hold on to in life and you don't need other people to prove or disprove them. They're just true yeah. who do who you are. I've, in fact, even I've had this conversation with people really close to me, probably 30 years ago, I made a decision. I don't want to necessarily be known as the smartest person or the most successful person or the most talented person, but I do, I have ambition to be the kindest person you've ever met. Mm. And so I've had a, a drive all my life I've had people who've told me, Erwin, you're an idiot. Kindness makes you weak. Kindness makes you soft. Hmm. You know, kindness is a disadvantage. And I can tell you, I've been in situations where kindness was a disadvantage. Yeah. It didn't change my commitment to this as a personal virtue in my life. Sure. You know, do I believe in God? Absolutely. In fact, I was at this event. It was like TED. It's called Renaissance. It's all these intellectuals who are hippies. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, super rich basically ted with but drugs. carmel yeah it's ted with drugs it's true and, and it's andals and uh and i thought i i brought my wife and i said i'd love being in environments where everyone's an atheist and no one knows me and and i don't have to relate to them from you know being a pastor in any way yeah within five minutes i'm in the coffee line somebody recognizes me mm. and they come up to me and they go hey, you're mcmanus right and i go uh yeah and they go, you really believe in God? And I go, I do. And they go, do you, do you really believe that God made the sun stand still? And all of a sudden, a crowd gathered. Hmm. This is my first five minutes there. They go, don't answer the question until we get our coffee we want to hear. So now I have a crowd. And I'm looking at these hyper-intellectuals. And, and I said, did, did you just ask me, did God make the sun stand still? And he goes, yes. And I said, I don't know if you know this, but the sun does stand still. It's yeah. actually the earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a guy. His name was Copernicus. <laughs> yeah. So, first of all, I think I caught him off guard yeah. <laughs> because he's the one believing in superstition. Right, right. And exactly. not me. And I said, but, but beyond that, I said, I believe in God because I believe in infinite possibilities. See, you don't believe in God. So, you've already narrowed your willingness to be open to infinite possibilities. I think my posture of believing in God is actually a more intellectually honest and explosive space to be in Hmm. because I don't limit my imagination to any possibility. Yeah. And it was the most enjoyable conversation. Yeah. And so what it does for me when I'm around people who violently disagree with me is it forces me to not box, but to move into Taekwondo, Yeah, (laughs) you know? I use the momentum of a person's intellect and their thought and their opinions to take me somewhere so extreme that I see the world in a whole new way. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah.
1: I think the reason you can do that is because you're well studied beyond just the religion that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is crucial when you're trying to have conversations with other people with different belief systems. Because if you only ever thought one thing, only ever believed one thing and never, never had real empathy for somebody else's perspective, then it's really difficult for you to even, first of all, relate to those people, let alone be able to have a conversation where there's any sort of like headway given on either side of the conversation. And speaking of that, I know you have an entire program on communication, something that you have dedicated a lot of your life to. Obviously, I don't, don't even know if you would even be able to estimate the number of hours you've spent speaking in front of people, to people, about people, whatever. So obviously the people listen to the show, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial self-improvement, mm-hmm. they, they want to become better versions of themselves. Most people, I think soft skills are going to be the thing that becomes the most important skill sets to learn Absolutely. in the next couple of decades, mainly with technology and yeah, The future AI belongs
0: to communicators.
1: That's, that's kind of my point, right? So yeah. I know we're kind of winding down a little bit, but mm-hmm. I, I would love to hear your perspective on what makes an expert communicator an expert.
0: Yeah. I, I do have this, um, master class called the seven frequencies of communication. And I break down human communication to seven dominant frequencies. And I, I, I am absolutely convinced that, um, a huge part of human communication is the connecting point that happens to human frequencies where there's a, a vibrational connection between human beings that creates transformation. What's amazing is that I'm making sounds right now and your brain is translating those sounds into meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, that skill is almost like mystical right and uh, humans are well, meaning to, to machines yeah and go <laughs> you know, uh, back long enough yeah and but we're meaning machines you know we we're constantly transferring meaning to each other and it, it changes us it affects us because we're open loop creatures which means if i come in optimistic and full of joy and you come in depressed one of us is going to affect the other mm-hmm. and i'm open loop so you could make me depressed <laughs> you know you're open loop so i actually i could actually infuse hope into you yeah human communication pours into people in an optimal level, the very things they need. And so sometimes, you know, we're on Instagram, right? And you're listening to the speakers and you, you listen to an Ed Milet and all of a sudden you're, you're getting a framework. It's almost like there's a, a frequency that's coming into your soul and you're being challenged or, yeah. you know, you're listening to, you know, Tony Robbins and all of a sudden you're being motivated or, you know, you're listening to someone else and you're being healed. And human communication is an incredible ability to heal you or to inspire you or to infuse courage into you. Mm. And and so I, I wanted to understand both the shadow side of, of human communication because it can do the opposite. Communication can manipulate you yeah. and shame you and control you and limit you. And so I think it's important to understand the power of communication. And, and, and frankly, it's one of the challenges I, I felt when I would struggle for faith is I would listen to a lot of communicators and I felt like they were using a, a, like a shadow frequency, a negative frequency hmm. of manipulation or control, you know, or performance. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with a friend who was an atheist and I said, I think you didn't reject God. I think you rejected the frequency in which God was communicated and you were right. Yeah. That frequency was inauthentic and it was dangerous. And so I think some of it for me is just trying to have conversations about faith about life about spirituality about god in frequencies that are authentic and honest and safe yeah and but i i love communication it's i love the power and beauty of words i love the fact that in one sentence i could explode an image in your mind and all of a sudden paint with colors that you've never had inside of your own soul yeah i love the fact that i can walk into a room filled with hope and optimism and fill the souls of other people with hope and optimism that they didn't have when they came in. I love the fact that I can talk to someone who's afraid or they're discouraged or they feel insignificant or just can't find the internal motivation to live the life they're created to live. And in one moment, I can communicate something and all of a sudden they're infused with courage and inspiration and hope and self-belief and a power to step into tomorrow. And so I don't ever wanna underestimate the power, the gift of human communication. Yeah. Communication comes from the same word as communion, the same word as community. And it, it, communication makes us communal. It connects us together. Yeah. And and by the way, we created the space for an online mastermind called The Arena. We focus on communication, leadership, mastery and big ideas hmm. and so every week i'm on there live but we also put everything from the art of communication which is a 16 hour master class on communication to the seven frequencies which is about a five hour journey everything we create for human development we put in there for free hmm. and then when you're a member you can access all of those learning and then we interact on a live basis because entrepreneurs are terrible at formal education but great at learning but they only learn when they're in crisis. Yeah. You know, you cannot tell an entrepreneur this is how you run the first base, then the second base, then the third base, and home. It's in between second and third base. The <laughs> entrepreneur goes, "All right, how do I get the third?" <laughs> That's because they weren't listening when you. <laughs> That's told right, them they weren't them. listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so we and I thought the future of education is dynamic learning, and so we created the arena. As it really to me, it's the alternative of the future education of entrepreneurs. It's not Harvard, it's not Yale, it's not Princeton. It's environments where people who actually do it are teaching people who are doing it.
1: What's your favorite method of communication? Because you've written, what is this, book number 10? Book
0: yeah, number, 10 or 11 or something or like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also have a graphic novel that's in work right now. A graphic novel. Yeah, it's really fun. Speaker,
1: podcaster, coach. What's your What's your preferred method of communication? If you could only communicate one way for the rest of your
0: life. That's tough, because. You know, I design clothes too. And I think designing clothes is the way you communicate. Yeah. And everything for me is storytelling. Ah, I think I'd have to say writing. Mm. Because I think when I'm speaking, I have the most short-term effect. Uh, When I'm in my best moment on a stage. Yeah. And I've had that. I mean, I just spoke at an event. had 250 people registered or something. 50,000. Sorry. 250,000 people registered. Yeah. And yet I know that one message has a short-term effect. But when I write a book, I can actually have long-term effect. That's a fair point. And that, if I can write one sentence in such a way that stays with you forever, it changes your life. And, you know, and so there's just this subtle sentence in The Artist and Soul that says that you are both a work of art and an artist at work. Hmm. And I find that phrase then travels across the world. If I had said it, people would have heard it and experienced it. But when I wrote it, it somehow it gets tattooed in someone's soul.
1: Erwin, this has been awesome, man. I I would love to do part two or part three at some point uh, in the future. But if you're watching, you're listening right now and you have not yet done this, go pick up a copy of Erwin's latest book, Mind Shift. I'm really looking forward to diving into this one. I've not had the pleasure of reading it quite yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Erwin, thanks so much for coming on. If there's anything that we can do for you, you know, let us know.
0: Hey, thank you so much, Travis.
1: Um, yes, sir. And if you're if you're watching or listening right now too, and you don't follow Erwin online, you should correct that mistake right now as well. <laughs> um, he's always putting out really, really encouraging things. And uh, and frankly, even if you're not you know religious or you're not a Christian or whatever, I have learned loads from people like Erwin on communicating better, disseminating information, relating to large crowds of people, and you know everybody can bet get better at that and have advantages in life because of those things. So Erwin, thanks again, man. That's been awesome. Hey, thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to Travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's Travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you, since I'm sharing my friends with you, is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.